Their faces reflected the wonder and excitement of entering another world. You could see it all over their faces. And I got to have a front row seat. Let me explain. Uh, last weekend, uh, my wife and I had a chance to be uh, with our grandkids in uh, northwestern Minnesota. And when we came on Friday night, uh, my daughter said something just in passing. She said, Dad, uh, we've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia. To, our kid, to the kids, and they're having a blast, and we're wondering when we can watch the movies with them. And there's some scary parts in there. If you know about the series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, there's an uh, evil white witch, and our grandkids are just uh, one, three, and five. She said, we just don't know when to do it, and we're going to wait a while. And I said, well, have you ever considered just showing a few scenes, like uh, entering Narnia? through the wardrobe, and when they meet Aslan, the great lion. So my daughter kind of looked at me, and she goes, that's a great idea. So Friday night, we could go this last weekend, uh, we, we got to be there when our grandkids entered a brand new world. And so I'm sitting by my three-year-old granddaughter, and my five-year-old grandson is next to my, my daughter. And they show this scene, and if you haven't seen the Chronicles of Narnia before, it's a whole new world that a group of children enter into. And here's my three-year-old granddaughter watching, going, like this. And little Lucy backs in the wardrobe, and she walks into a new land. And little Rosie goes, there's snow. There's Mr. Thomas. And I'm right next to her, and I'm laughing, and just click, 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 click. And then, and then Aslan comes out, the great Christ figure. And he, he walks out, elegant. Boom, boom, this lion. And my grandson, five years old, sits next to my daughter, and he goes, wow. We heard it. And I saw someone, I saw two of our precious grandchildren, entered into a new world. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Not to Narnia, per se, but into an encounter with the living God who says, here I am. He says, I will satisfy you. He says, you will find delight and joy in me. And we're going to see that through what you might consider, that's what fasting is all about? A spiritual discipline? Watch and see. It will be a portal that you may say, I never, ever thought of that before. So let me set the context for uh, this message that we're going to have and that we're going to take a look at together. Just a context of the people who listened then and those of us who listen now. And secondly, we'll take a uh, a context of how chapter 58 in the book of Isaiah um, really is teaching for us. So first of all, the context of listeners in the chapter that we're going to take a look at, those people back then and us were incredibly the same in this regards. The people who heard Isaiah 58, where we're going to go, were people who were living in exile. They weren't in their country that was made for them, that they had lived in. They lived in a foreign country. They were political asylum, if you will. There were immigrants 
in a different country. And so when these promises that we've been hearing in the book of Isaiah came repeatedly, repeatedly, namely that they would go back to their land and namely that their temple would be rebuilt, it was promising, yes, it was encouraging, yes, but it was frustrating as well. And they kept saying, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? The, the Israelites were spread out all over the Babylonian Empire. They were in Egypt, they were in Babylon, they were spread out over the world. And they were asking the simple question, when's it going to happen? They lived in an already not yet period of time, in that space. When they heard the message, and they said, that's great, but when's it going to happen? Just like us. What do you mean by that, Pastor Kirk? Well, in five weeks, this baptismal font will get replaced by an Advent wreath. Advent is the first season of the Christian church. And Advent means, it's a Latin word that means preparing or expecting the arrival of someone great. Who is that? That's Christ. And, and it reminds us, the Advent season reminds us that Christ came first one time and he will come again another time. And now the space that we live in is called the last days. Why do we call it the last days? Because of what's happening in the Middle East? Because of the tension between China and Russia? Because of the economic instability? Because of the fill in the blank? Because of this? The writer for the book of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1-2, he says, but in these last days, he or God, the one who sustains all of life and all creation, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. Jesus' good friend, the Apostle Peter, writes on Pentecost, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. That's the context of hearers then, already not yet, and hearers today. Christ came, he's coming again. That's the context. As we read Isaiah 58, here's the other context that you need to know. Isaiah 58 is really a teaching, uh, almost a New Testament teaching about a spiritual discipline called fasting. Now, as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, I hope that you've heard repeated themes again and again and again. I don't want to make you mad. I just wanted to try to get that so that kind of is time-stamped in your heart and in your soul. But we've also made the comment that the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, but the thing that we haven't really spent a lot of time on, and it dawned on me as I've been working on this message for a couple weeks, I thought, you know, Isaiah has really been called the little Bible within the Bible. Why would they say that? Because there's 66 chapters there's 66 chapters in, in uh, 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 chapters in the Bible. You go, okay, what, what's the big deal? Well, the first half, 1 through 39, represents the Old Testament. Like there's 39 chapters in the Old Testament, right? And then the second half of Isaiah is chapters 40 through 66. 27 chapters, just like we have the New Testament. And it dawned on me, I thought, I thought to myself, wait a second. That would mean like 58 would be in the New Testament section. Okay, what's the significance of that? Well, if it's in the New Testament section, a lot of times in the New Testament, we get teaching, right? 
we get epistles, right? They help us understand what it means to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. In the New Testament, we hear about uh, leadership in the church. Uh, we hear teaching on marriage, Christian marriage. What's that all about? How to raise your kids, finances, the tongue, what to do about sexuality and how to handle those, the tension there. We get all this teaching, and now we get this teaching in the book of Isaiah. And the teaching that we get is on a spiritual discipline called fasting. Fasting. Now, we sing a song. So let's, let's have a real quick word on, on fasting. And, and first of all, clarification. We sing a song here at church called, He Will Hold Me Fast. He Will Hold Me Fast. The song goes like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Is that what, we're, is that what Isaiah is talking about in this chapter? It's not. That song would, would, would work this way. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will surely grip me, hold me, solidly hold on to me, steadfast hold on to me. That's not what we're talking about or what Isaiah is talking about in the book, in the chapter 58. Fasting is used seven times in 14 verses. When a word is repeated again and again, it's significant. It's a noun and verb. So what exactly is fasting? So, Here's a quick word on fasting, and here we go. This comes from Richard Foster in a great book called The Celebration of Discipline. He said this, Fasting is the voluntary denial of otherwise normal functioning for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Let me repeat that again. Fasting is a voluntary denial of otherwise normal functioning for the sake of intense spiritual activity. It's abstaining from something Mostly food can be other things as well, too. Foster goes on to say this. He says this. Fasting reveals the thing that controls us. We are not so much abstaining from food as we are, listen to this, we are feasting on the word of God. Fasting is feasting. Fasting reveals the things that control us. We are not so much abstaining from food as we are from feasting on the word of God. Fasting is feasting. So I played with those words a little bit. And the name of this message is entitled The Feast of Fasting from Isaiah chapter 58. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, the 18th century pastor and theologian, said this, Some have exalted fasting beyond all scripture and reason, and some have disregarded it. Do you see the extremes on the, on the continuum there? Some have just thought this is the ultimate spiritual discipline and others have just gone doesn't matter today what we want to do is we want to try to land right in the middle so a couple things of what fasting isn't fasting is not what you see on instagram or social media with the really ripped people that say intermittent fasting lose weight look at me and you go you're a jerk you have a six-pack and i've got two liters right here that's not what we're talking about okay it's also not for show. It's not for show. Jesus made a big, big deal out of this in his sermon, in his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wrote in Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites. 
do, for they disfigure their face to show how others are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that you will not be obvious that others are fasting, but only to your heavenly Father. Shh! Who is unseen? Your Father who sees what's done as secret, he'll reward you. It's not for show. And finally this, this is huge because you'll see this when we read the passage of Scripture. Fasting is not a way to coerce God into doing something for us he doesn't wish to do. In other words, it's not a way of twisting your arm. Well, I fasted, and the God of heaven goes, whoa, okay then. And you're going to pick up the sarcasm in Isaiah's words. Just to repeat that, to make sure you hear it, fasting is not a way to coerce God into do something for us he doesn't wish to do. The idea suggests both a distorted view of God Almighty and a super high need for control. We aren't twisting his arm, not at all. That's why when Jen read the call to worship from Psalm 51, did you catch that? Search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there is a wicked way in me. Search me, O God. So we... We begin with the section. I invite you to uh, turn to page 638, Isaiah chapter 58. It's in your pew Bible, page 638. And we see right out of the chute, right out of the chute, a command. And he wants to get our attention. He wants to get our attention. It's similar to when we first started in the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah began in chapters 1 through 5, the wickedness of Judah. Here he comes again. And the main point in the first five verses is this. There is a hypocrisy of fasting versus the responsibility of fasting. And Isaiah calls that out. And he calls us out as well too. We'll read the whole text and then we'll come back to this first section. And then we'll get into this teaching part, if you will. Did you find it there? Chapter 58, reading in Jesus' name. And you notice there's true fasting, and that's why we spent some time on what non-true fasting is. Here we go. Shout it out aloud. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out and they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that doesn't, does what is right and hasn't forsaken the commandment of its God. Do you hear the sarcasm? They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. It's a waste of time. Is this kind of fast I've chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's heads like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? No. Change. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will come quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard and then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday and the Lord will guide you always and he'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame and you will be like well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairs of broken wall, restorer of streets with dwellings. And if you keep your feet, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing it as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it not by going your own way and not by doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you'll find your joy. <laughs> you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and a feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. It's true. Always will be true. It speaks to us. It is alive. The first part of this hypocrisy versus fasting starts with sarcasm. I hope you, you pick that up in verses 2 and 3. The people feel that God is not being fair, even in their sincere rituals. Verse 3 shows us that they're fasting, but God is not blessing. Why? Because they are unjust toward one another. God's people are disappointed when they cannot manipulate our glorious Lord for their own terms and their own purposes. Don't miss verse 4. Seeking the Lord while wronging one another makes prayer a waste of time. That's why Psalm 51 is so powerful. Verse 5 says, if your spiritual lives are only practiced on Sunday, but our social duties and our personal lives are neglected the other six days of the week, Monday through Saturday, this kind of Christianity, this kind of spiritual life, this kind of religion offends our Heavenly Father. You may say that's strong words, Pastor Kirk. It is. Here's the words from Jesus' younger brother, James. In James 1.27, he says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Last April, this April, we did a, as part of our series called we, Can We Talk About? We talked about deconstruction. Some of you might remember there were four young adults that were on stools and we talked about deconstruction and there's a lot of reasons why people walk away from their faith. A number of them have been identified. And one of them as well is when lips don't match with walk. You'll hear heartbreaking stories of people who have professed Christ and lived a different way. 
and especially to a younger generation. They don't want anything to do with that. And why should they? And the challenge for you and me, those of us who have gray in our hair or gray in our beard, we're the grown-ups. We're the mature ones. God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us that we walk in repentance and humility for these younger ones who are watching us. I taught confirmation on Wednesday night, the opening of the Lord's Prayer. We talked about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I asked the students, I said, what's your going to bed routine? I mean, after you brush your teeth and put your pajamas on and all that stuff, what do you do when your head hits a pillow? Let me suggest something. I suggest it to them, and I suggest it to you. Look at Psalm 51 and ask just a simple question or a simple prayer. God, forgive my sins. If I've sinned you in omission sins or commission sins, have mercy on me. Go to bed saying, God, have mercy on me. And he will. There's a beautiful song that we sing by Phil Wickham. It's a brand new song, but I love this song. It's called Living Hope. We've sung it a number of years for the um, Easter service. It goes like this. Who can imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. Listen to the next line. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Alleluia. Praise the one who set me free. Amen. Alleluia. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. The next note's too high for me to sing. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ. You are my living hope. Thank God. Then Isaiah turns. Then Isaiah turns to the Feast of Fasting. And he shares with us the conditions of the Feast of Fasting in 6 through 14. God's true people honor him with obedience that is costly, cheerful, and satisfying. These conditions are a matter of openness. We obey because of grace. We obey by his ongoing grace. These conditions are never merited they're not kind of a checklist kind of deal, but it's openness to obedience fueled, listen, fueled by the never undrainable grace of God, which brings joy and pleasure and triumph and, yes, feasting. This section is marked by if-then reasoning. See the words? They're right there in the text. If we honor God, he will bless us. But again, hear this. These conditions are not a matter of merit. We do not deserve his blessing. We don't bargain a blessing. I loved when Pastor Brett, do you guys practice that part when Rebecca cried right when you had the, that was beautiful. 
That was beautiful. That was awesome. Rebecca just is loved. She just is held. We don't bargain a blessing. No. We are saved by grace and we obey by grace. And we don't obey to get more grace. We obey because of grace. Think about it. If anybody could get God's grace and blessings, it was the Pharisees. Whoa! They dedicated their whole life to that. They added 613 laws. There was no place for them. We don't have a 50-50 partnership with God. I do for God. He does for me. No. The test of true fasting is he sees, he knows, he cares. Do something in private that no one will know but your Heavenly Father. So after the wrong kind of fasting, Australian Bible commentator Barry Webb says, after the wrong kind of fasting comes an expression that truly pleases God. Genuine repentance, turning away from exploitation and quarreling. It's not just the food we're abstaining from, but adopting a lifestyle in which self-indulgence and greed are totally given up and replaced by the generosity to the poor. The great paradox in ministry is that blessing comes from self-denial. We gain life by laying down our own lives. That's how we treat it. It's upside down. So take a look at verses 6 through 9. You'll find it there. The words are, is not verse 6, is not verse 7. Then this happens. What happens? If we, look what it says, if we loose the chains of injustice, if we untie the cords of the yoke, if we set the oppressed free, if we share our food with the hungry, if we provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, clothe them. If you don't turn away from your own flesh and blood, then, then what? Then the Lord Yahweh says, here I am. That ain't Narnia, that's Yahweh. Let that just hit you. That's who he is. God humbly offers himself in verse 9. He humbly offers himself. The literal standard version says this. You cry, he says, Behold me, Yahweh, all of who he is. And then the book, the writer, Isaiah, he, 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 he repeats it. There's social responsibilities with personal rewards. Both are bolded in your, in your handout to pick up the nuance that he's saying. Please Listen. Some of you might say, is this the social gospel? No, it's the socially responsible gospel that loves our neighbor and joins Jesus on his mission to see our neighbors loved and cared for across the street and around the world. You may say, I have a hard time with that. I came across a quote from Francis Chan. It was fantastic. Hit me between the eyes. Francis Chan, the pastor, says, when I come across something in the Bible I disagree with, I assume I'm wrong. I went, yeah, yeah, what he says. Second thing of the true fasting. It's repeated again. It's repeated again in verses 9b through 12a. A true fasting helps people flourish. And if we spend ourselves on that, God will satisfy us. Notice the caution. Notice the caution of a pointing finger. Proverbs 6, 12 through 14, a troublemaker and a villain 
who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eyes, signals with his feet, motions with his finger, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, always stirs up conflict. Be careful of that. Notice the word malicious. It is in the original word awin. Think of the word amen and flip the M to a W. And it's a nuanced word, taken out of context, making trouble, unacceptable for false worship, fault finding, having the pastor or somebody, a leadership, for lunch, critiquing something in the church that maybe you can fix. Be careful about that. I've been in a conversation with people and I've said, let's put the best construction on that. Let's think the best things of those people. Watch gossip. Verse 10 says, spend yourself. Spend yourself. I love that our church is, in the, is, is helping with the food pantry. I love that our church walks for the unborn. I love our church when you do projects for transitional houses. I love when our church packs boxes for the need, shoe, uh, backpacks for the needy. I love our church when we go nuts about packing shoeboxes for the, for the forgotten. Yay, 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 yay. No buts. The question that we ask as we join Jesus on his mission is, God, what good can I do around here? Pick one. Pick one. And God will satisfy your needs. How do I know he'll satisfy my needs? Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. Pastor Brian preached on it a number of years ago, wrote some notes down on it. Psalm 78 is a 30,000 foot version of God's faithfulness to his people. You don't get in all the details, but you get this wide sweep, this wide sweep. While they were rebellious, he was faithful. And Psalm 78, 72 says this. God cared for them with a true heart, and he led them with faithful, with skillful hands. God's faithfulness, he used a man by the name of David. He will satisfy your needs. The idea is this, to make your bones fat. And you may go, well, that's not going to help. It means to make you healthy. He'll make you healthy. The church leaves a footprint, leaves a massive footprint. Can you imagine all of the good acts, the good deeds, the ways that God's people act this out, if you put them all together, what would that look like? This is what it would look like. Right here, this just jumped out at me. Christian philanthropy accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022. At 300 billion total, Christians outgave the US government in addressing global poverty. Wow! Wow! I don't have to defend the church. This is what's happening. And I say, I get to be a part of that. Think of all the lives that have been changed. And what will God do? He will satisfy you. Who is he? This is who he is. John Piper explained Yahweh, the great I am, meaning this. He, the one who never had an, a beginning. The God who's utterly independent. All the universe compared to God is nothing. He is the absolute standard to all that is good and beautiful and true. 
He is the most important and valuable person in the universe. And he says to you, child of God, daughter of the Most High King, son of the King, he says, behold, me. I will satisfy you with me. With me. Wow. The final condition, the third condition, is a shift. It clarifies the, the, the practice of, of fasting with a Sabbath gift. There is a shift. And Sabbath brings delight and joy and inheritance and an emphasis on joy. It is a sacred observation. Think of the hearers of that day. Think of the hearers of that day. They were in Babylon. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. Do you think they ever had a Sabbath? Probably not. And what about Babylon? They're exiles. Do you think that was in their HR compensation package? Probably not. And for hearers of our day too, here's the challenge. Sabbath isn't a second Saturday. It's not a second Saturday, gang. It's a time for us to stop, feed our souls, and have rest for the body and food for the soul. God wants to give us a gift, a beautiful gift of abiding and resting with him. And look at what he promises comes with Sabbath. Verse 8 says, it will renew your soul. Verse 8 says again, it will bring security to you. It'll be your rear guard. It will confirm answered prayer. Verse 9, verse 10. Bleakness and the darkness of your soul will be addressed in this command. We'll give spiritual refreshment in verse 4, 14. And it will bring elation. Wow. It almost seems anticlimactic. Wouldn't that be nice? A day off. But really, it's an opportunity to meet with the Most High King. True fasting. One of the things that Julie and I, let me conclude this way. One of the things Julie and I look forward to, I, I just have a weird schedule. My week is always different. One of the things that we enjoy uh, during Christmas time is helping with the Salvation Army at Festival of Foods. The hardest thing about it is for two hours, I have to look at the Green Bay Packers, the official grocery store of the Green Bay Packers, as a Viking fan, and I go, okay, this is for you, Jesus. I'm doing my thing. But, but it just reminds me, it just reminds me of the incredible stories that Salvation Army is doing and the people that God is helping. And if for two hours, Julie and I can ring a bell and works with our crazy schedule, to God be the glory. I'm saying that not to impress you, but it's just work for us. And it's just a reminder of God, what can I do? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for this teaching from um, your son, our brother in Christ, the prophet Isaiah. This practical discipline of fasting. I pray that you would loose this in our church family for your glory and for your honor. Maybe it's something that we try to advance your kingdom, not to manipulate you, to advance your kingdom and bring glory and honor to your name. In Christ's name, amen.